And uh, kids, you can start getting ready to make your way to your teachers. It's amazing how certain songs can just take you certain places. And I can't hear that song without being taken to a certain season in life where it ministered life and healing to me. So thank you for singing that. And as the kids go out, all the uh, everyone else, we can kind of use this as an object lesson. Uh, we're at an exciting stage and season in our church as we're trying to establish our uh, identity and institutions so that we can have a stable and uh, healthy ministry. And as you can see by all the kids that flow out, um, we have been obedient to the Lord's command to be fruitful and multiply. And... Uh, and one of the things we need to stabilize and get uh, going is our children's ministry. So thank you for everyone who has served in the children's ministry before. Really, we need, um, in, since the fall, we've been averaging about 90 kids a week, which is amazing. And so in order to make that not manic and crazy on the volunteers, we need about 20 adults for uh, the 90 kids. And um, we are committed to not having... Um, the adults out of the service more than twice a month. So we don't want people to get burned out and not be in the service because we want you here to experience worship, to be fed and have your soul encouraged. Uh, so we probably need another maybe 20 adults over the fall to uh, volunteer to sign up so you can get on the loop. Uh, hopefully maybe once a month if we have that, that would be uh, great. So um, if you are interested in that, you can fill out the Connect card, just check the box and drop it in the offering plate and uh, we'll get in touch with you and we'll also forward along heavenly riches your way as well for filling that out. So, uh, now, we're in Ephesians chapter 4, so if you have your Bible, you can turn uh, with me to Ephesians chapter 4 or look on the back of your bulletin. We'll have the passage uh, there, Ephesians chapter 4. And this is a transition point. It's a significant transition point in the book of Ephesians. So we started in the summer looking at uh, the book of Ephesians because there's no better book to give us a picture of what the church is what it's meant to be, what Christ desires for it. And in chapters 1 through 3, Paul kind of lifts you up into the heavenlies. He gives you this glorious, um, big picture, beautiful uh, image of who the church is, what she's meant to be, what she's meant to do, how she was purchased. And then in chapter 4, there's a transition where he's moving you down out of the heavenly realm into the nitty-gritty reality of earth. So, all right, you have this incredible calling in Christ. Now, how do we live it out in the just rough-and-tumble reality of every single day? And so you look at chapter 4, verse 1. This is really the transition moment in the book, the hinge, and the theme for the whole rest of the book, chapters 4, 5, and 6. It says, Therefore, I, therefore a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have received. So he's, he's calling them to walk worthy. And that's an interesting word. The word worthy is really a word with a picture in it. Um, the Greek word is axios, axios, axis. And so the image is like you have this, this beam on this axis point, and you got to walk in a way, and so it stays balanced. So it's really a calling. It says because of, of this great calling you have, you need to walk in a way where you have um, emotional, spiritual balance. You're, you're healthy. You're whole. You're mature. And 
And I don't think there's anybody in this room over the age of about 12 who wouldn't feel the emotional or existential need. Yes, I need more balance in my life. How do you find this? Wholeness, health, and that's what the calling is. And you see there in the beginning, the the thing that must be balanced is this incredible calling you hear about in chapters 1 through 3 with faithful living that he's going to call you to in chapters 4, 5, and 6. So what has to be balanced is God's call in our life, his glorious acting and our faithful responding. Because he's already told us in one sense, 1 through 3, we have these incredible blessings We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's brought us from death to life. He's made us new. He's made us whole. He's bringing this people who once were divided together. Paul's already celebrated God's eternal plan to gather all things in heaven on earth under Christ. That was chapter 1. And that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, which reconciles us to God first and then one another, that's chapter 2. And then he's going to manifest this triumphant wisdom of his gospel to all the heavenly realms. That's chapter 3. He says you have this remarkable calling. Now you got to live in the light of that. That has to shape how you live. And so what he's going to do in chapter four, five, and six, he's going to kind of bring you down to reality and say, all right, how do you live in three primary areas in the church, in the world, and at home? These are the the arenas in which you're going to have to work these things out. And isn't it interesting, if you know the book of Ephesians in chapter six is his famous um, spiritual warfare passage, where he says, life is warfare, What's interesting is the warfare is to live out the gospel in these three arenas, in the church, in your home, and out in a dark and difficult world. So we're actually going to spend the next month, because of kind of where we are as as a church, really immersing ourselves in the first 16 verses of chapter 4, because there's so much wisdom here for us on how do we establish the systems, the structures, the goals of who we want to be as as a church. And in verses 1 through 16 is really Paul's call for maturity. He says the whole goal of all this that we're doing, the whole goal is that you would become um, whole. You would become mature. You would become balanced. And uh, so just a couple, I'm going to kind of make a couple kind of side comments as we, we progress and set up. I do think it's interesting. Notice in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you I urge you. It's a fascinating word. It's the word in Greek. It's parakaleo. Para, come alongside. Kaleo, I call out. I'm like someone, you're running this race and you're tired and you're weary and you don't know if you can go another step. And I'm going to come alongside you and I'm going to urge. I'm going to call out to try and help you. Now, if you were with us last uh, or in the beginning, I don't remember when we were in John chapter 15 and 16. Whenever we were in John 15 and 16, that's the upper room discourse. And Jesus talks about he's going to send another helper, an advocate, a counselor, someone who's going to come alongside you and encourage you. And that's the Holy Spirit. He's the paracolete, the one who comes alongside. And what's so fascinating is here, Paul is actually doing the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. Because this is how the work of the Holy Spirit, this is how, what the Holy Spirit does. He uses people and means to do his work of encouraging and exhorting and advocating uh, for you. So Paul's coming alongside. And really what you can see in this whole section is you can almost see this equation for church growth. 
How can you as a Christian or uh, a church growth, how can you become healthy? And what he's going to say, I'm going to come alongside you because the Holy Spirit uses certain things to help you grow and be mature. And the things he uses is he uses gospel community plus gospel ministry. And when you put those two things together, it equals gospel maturity. So you want to get to maturity, you need a gospel-shaped community that's dedicated to a gospel-infused ministry, and then those two things are what's going to uh, bring you to a place of gospel maturity. So we're going to look at um, these things. That's kind of the outline of all of verses 1 through 16. The community that we need, that Jesus died so we could be, the community, the ministry he gives, and then the maturity that he desires. So for the next two weeks, we're going to look at this idea of what is the community? What's the gospel-shaped community supposed to be like? What type of community do you need to grow and thrive? And there's a couple things we'll see here in verses 1 through 6 especially. There are certain characteristics. There's character traits. And then there's convictions. You're going to have a healthy gospel community. There's things you have to be and things you have to know. There's convictions and character. And he begins with the character. So let's read. We'll just read verses 1 through 6. And we'll look at this morning the character of the community he wants to create. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So here in what, verses 1 through 6, this is, the, this is the, the character we need. And as you look at this, kind of the way you can kind of break it down, there's three traits and two tasks. So if you want to have your character shaped and formed, there's three traits you need and two two tasks you need. And you can really see it, uh, look at the traits. You can see it, each one, of course the ESV kind of hides it because it's kind of rough English, but each one starts with with. There's, in essence, three withs and two buys. You need the with, with humility, with gentleness, with patience. And the way you do that is by bearing with one another in love, and then maintaining the unity of the Spirit. So three traits, two tasks that will shape us. And before we kind of jump into those three traits and the two tasks, it's worth just thinking about character development for a moment. Uh, How, because you know, your character, you know, in one sense, in this world, character is king, because or the world of, of the church, the people that God is trying to create, he cares more about your character and the formation than anything else in your life. Because um, your character is like the filter that's going to taint or purify every single thing that happens in your life. Everything that comes flowing to you and then out through you is going to be shaped, taint, tainted, touched by the filter of your character. But character is difficult because it's slow. It's, it's slow in developing. We like things instant and quick. And character, character is slow. I mean, I'm intrigued by um, one of the shows that uh, Cynthia and I used to... Cynthia and her sister were really into for a season, The Biggest Loser. 
And uh, my brother-in-law had a Biggest Loser Survival Strategy Guide. And so he would say, all right, I will watch this with you until the first tier. And then the first tier, I'm out. And it was this beautiful strategy because he only would like give up six minutes and then there'd be a tier and he'd be like, all right, I'm going to the garage to do something useful. And, uh, <laughs> but I was so fascinated, not so much by the show. I was really intrigued by what happens afterwards. So if you're not familiar with the show, you have people who, uh, it's a weight loss competition. So you see who can be the biggest loser amount of weight in the shortest amount of time. So you have people who lose like in 8, 10, 12 weeks, lose like you know, 80, 90, 120 pounds. But um, have you ever heard of the concept called stasis? What's so fascinating is so many, so they would then follow the contestants after they would get off the show, and almost none of them, regardless of what they did, could actually keep the weight off. And so you have people who, in like 12 weeks, lost 120 pounds, and then they couldn't maintain that weight loss, even though they would be on severe caloric restrictive diets where they're getting like less than 1,000 calories a day, and there's stars on your body, because your body has achieved a certain level of stasis, kind of standard operating procedure, and it probably took you 20 years to get there, and it's settled in, and it is going to do everything it can to fight against you to get back to that. And it's just so hard to really change. And it's interesting. I'm inclined in my more pessimistic moments, which can be too frequent, is to agree with like Plato. So Plato thought that um, he didn't believe in the gospel or the, he didn't know about Jesus or the power of the Holy Spirit and thought like once your, your character became fixed by the time you were 13, and that was it. You're stuck. So if like if you're a jerk when you're 18, sorry, there's no you're just stuck because your character is fixed because they thought it's so hard to have deep, real, lasting change because the gravitational pull pulling you back towards selfishness and anger and pride is just so strong. But we believe in the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel, um, that's why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God to bring transformation, to bring salvation. We believe in the presence and the reality of the Holy Spirit, and that within God's people, when you combine God's people with God's word and spirit, it creates change. But it's difficult, and it's also slow-moving. And often it's not things that happen impressively or quickly. That's why I think Paul says, walk. You don't have to walk going to be the slow, steady transformation. So with all that kind of in mind, or actually one more just kind of uh, prelude before we jump into the three. Notice what Paul's talking about here is he's talking about maintaining unity, and the unity is with actual real relationships of people you know. So um, he's not talking about some kind of vague, generic, uh, sentimental love for the brotherhood of all humanity. He's talking about wanting you to have real unity with the people you know, like the actual flesh and blood people around you that you can see and touch. So it's so easy for us. Think about a certain uh, significant person in the life of American politics whose family is kind of moving off the scene, but one of his, I remember hearing about his character is that he loved humanity. He was for humanity. It was just all the people around him he had a hard time with. And that's so just how we are. We can love kind of big, general, vague things. It's just the actual real flesh and blood people that are next to us we have a difficult time with. Paul's talking about actual love and unity with the people around you that you know. Um, and so how do you get this character? How do you get these traits? Uh, three character traits, two tasks. 
And let's think about these things, what they are, why we need them, how we get them. So the first one you notice is with all humility. So Paul's painting a picture is what's the type of community in which you're really going to grow and thrive and be transformed. And it's a community that's marked by humility, gentleness, and patience. So why do you think Paul starts with humility? Why start there? You know, it's kind of interesting. You know, humility, um, we, we sort of value humility. Like we value it in a... Uh, like a surface way, but not in a deep way. In Paul's world, they didn't value it at all. They thought it was a ridiculous thing. Um, in Paul's day, you know, humility was seen seen as weak and uh, and 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 weak. But but what is it? Or it might be helpful to think. All right, what's the opposite? Because with every virtue, there's a vice that they do they they battle. So if you want to cultivate humility, you got to fight pride. So what? What actually is pride? And C.S. Lewis has this great line where he says, Pride is the unsmiling concentration on self. It's the unsmiling, continual concentration on self. It's it's the all-consuming me. And if you think about it, there's probably nothing at this moment you're more aware of than you. How are you doing? We're so aware of how am I doing? How am I feeling? Am I happy? Am I sad? Am I pressured? Am I stressed? Am I tired? Am I relaxed? Am I carefree? How am I doing? And deep in every single human heart, there's this desire to be noticed. There's a desire to be the focus of attention. There's a desire that can, that can take over all we do. And it's this internal cancer that can eat you away, and it's an external poison that can poison your most precious relationships. And that's what pride is. It's this unsmiling concentration on me. You know, pride is fueled by I do. Look what I do. I do. Or I deserve. I deserve this. I am this. So let's think a moment. Let's try and diagnose ourselves. Where can you see it? Because it can take so many different um, manifestations. You know, it can be manifested in self-centeredness. You know, it's kind of obvious. But, you know, self-pity is also a form of pride. To give yourself over to self-pity means you think you deserve better than what you're getting. And that's just your pride. You can be a conflict chaser where you like to be a bulldog. Or you can be a conflict avoider or you don't want to confront anyone about anything, but both of those are just different forms of pride. You can, uh, actually, one of the best ways that you can tell um, how proud you are is how do you deal with criticism? What's your natural response when criticism comes? So actually, one of the most helpful ways we can work the gospel into one another's life is to criticize each other. You can tell how true is the gospel to me by how you respond to criticism. So do I get um, inflexible and want to justify myself and, and fight back, um, probably fueled by my pride? Or are you so flexible that you'll just cave and fall over and say, oh, I'll do whatever you say because I don't want anybody mad at you? That's still a form of pride, just two different sides of it. You can be inflexible or totally flexible, and both are ways pride's manifesting itself. And think about the things that pride is going to fuel. Pride then will fuel your anxiety, 
because you know better than God how your life should go, so it's going to fuel anxiety. It can fuel anger and resentment because you deserve better things than what uh, you're getting. And it can be this toxic poison that poisons you and your relationships. You know, it's interesting in the Old Testament, pride is referred to a little over 250 times. And nearly every single time it's referred to is in the context of the Lord opposing the proud and bringing them down. So pride. Um, so humility is the first one. Then gentleness. Think about gentleness for a second. What is gentleness? Why do we need it? What is it? Uh, the actual word is the same word as meekness. Heard that, but that's a hard thing for us to understand. Don't think like meek, uh, you know, class, it's not meekness, it's not weakness, it's not being um, passive or. The only words coming to mind is a pansy. I don't know if that's appropriate to say or not, but that's the word coming into my mind. So. The opposite, the image in the word meekness is also an image. It's a pictorial word of a strong horse that is bridled and controlled. So it's an image of tremendous strength, but it's, in, it's strength that's controlled, that uh, knows how to, to, how to function. Um, the opposite of, of gentleness is obviously harshness, to be harsh. But I was thinking about this. In one sense, we all know what it is to be harsh just from people who are mean, I mean, just be mean and be harsh. But you know, it is really possible to be harsh, not because you're mean, just because you're ignorant. And you don't know the effect you're having on people. It's kind of like the comedic reality of uh, Steve Carell's character in The Office, Michael Scott. So much of the comedic thing is that he didn't know how much of a buffoon he was being. Or he didn't know how he, the things he was saying were, was inappropriate. So people would look like, is he really saying that? And it's, it, it's, fuel, it's still a lack of gentleness. It just kind of comes from ignorance. I mean, just, you just be around children. Uh, it's a mark of immaturity. I mean, children have no problem pointing out to you the things that are wrong with you. Like, they look, oh, daddy, what's that giant red thing on your face? Like, oh, thank you. I'm aware. They'll point it right out. You know, we have a two-year-old son, we have to, and another baby, we have to tell him over and over, it's gentle, gentle. He doesn't realize he's being a bulldozer and smashing his brother into the ground. So why do you need gentleness? You know, in one sense, it kind of depends on the type of work that has to be done in your heart. So, for example, if the renovation the Holy Spirit has to do in your heart is like, you know, tearing up a bathroom, you know, in your house, you, know, you don't really need a whole lot of gentleness just to crack that thing down. You can just demo day, you can, uh, you can just wield the hammer. But if you need a, a surgeon to clean out your heart because it has a blockage in it, you want gentleness, if you need someone to repair your eyes, you want gentleness. And so the type of gentleness that we need, the, the, the work that has to be done in our souls, we need strong, skillful hands that are also gentle, that will be tender with us. And then the last thing he says you got to have in this community is patience. You know, the old King James word for patience is long-suffering, the ability to suffer long. And this is interesting because we do not live in a world that values patience at all, but Paul's world actually did. They, um, they valued patience. They thought that impatient people were shallow. They were reckless. They were rash. They thought if you were impatient, it just means you hadn't simply taken the time to think about what you were doing. And, uh, but we don't really value patience. So it's, it's hard on us. I mean, our economy cultivates it. 
I mean, one of the things Jeff Bezos said is you can make a fortune if you take any, any barrier from people and purchase. You have to be able to exploit their impulse. So it's buy it now. Get it now. We have to find a way to have products where we just, as soon as we think we want it, it just pops out of the sky right here. So not even two-day delivery, not even two-hour delivery. We did it now because we're impatient. It's like the Brian Regan skit. I don't know if you know Brian Regan. He's a com- comedian. He talks about the, uh, the Pop-Tart. Because you know the Pop-Tart uh, is a pastry. If you're not familiar with Pop-Tarts, uh, the way you cook them, so the cooking strategy for this pastry is you put it in the, in the toaster and you wait for 30 seconds. But do you know that there are instructions on the back of the Pop-Tart for microwave instructions? So if you do not have time to wait the 30 seconds to have the toaster cook your Pop-Tart, you can microwave it for four seconds. So who is in such a hurry that they can't wait for the toaster to cook their Pop-Tart? But that's the society and world we live in. We live in instant gratification society. And so patience is going to be hard, but the reality, you know, here's the reality is that every single day, every hour of the day, you're going to encounter either people or circumstances that will frustrate you, that will disappoint you, that could infuriate you. People or circumstances in every single day, you're going to have the opportunity to either respond in an impatient, harsh, arrogant way, or you're going to have opportunities to respond in a humble, gentle patient way. And so one of the real challenges, all right, how can we get to a point where we respond when we're dealing with difficult people or difficult circumstances in a patient, humble, gentle way? You know, I was thinking about dealing, you know, one of the big challenges for cultivating patience is first um, that we're impatient. So we have the internal challenge, but then the challenge is we're surrounded by a whole bunch of people who are impatient too. Uh, and often your patience will be challenged by the immaturity of the people around you. There was a time in my life where I deluded myself and I thought I was a patient person. And the event, the moment, I can tell you where it was. It was at the uh, parking lot of Chick-fil-A in Tifton, Georgia, where all of my delusions of being a patient person evaporated in my face. And the cause was I, in a moment of insanity, tried to take a road trip with our two toddlers. And so what a trip that should normally take six hours, we had made it all the way to Tifton, which is four hours from here. Um, So a a journey that should take four hours. We were on hour 44, and it was just myself and our two girls when they were three and two, and we were trying to make our way up to grandmama's house, and um, we got into the Chick-fil-A, and we spent the hour it took to get our food, get to the table, and they're spinning in chairs, and not eating, and dropping things on the floor, and playing things on the playground, and we do all, or do all of the work to get them fed. Get them, and I think the hardest, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life is get toddlers across the street and into a car. And so to get them into the car, I'm not sweat, dr- just drenched in sweat. They're squirming, like sit still. And then, and then finally get them buckled. And like three hours later, after we stopped, we crank up the car, we're pulling out of the driveway. And every single one of you parents knows exactly what I heard as soon as we were pulling out. Here, daddy, daddy, 
I have to go potty. I have to go potty. Right now, I got to go potty. And there's just... Uh, I, I, did it not ever dawn on you for the last four hours where we were sitting across the way from the bathroom? Did you never once think that you had to go potty? Why in this one moment? And that's when it dawned on me, I am not a patient person. And I called him and I said, I don't care what we have to do. I am never doing this again. Tell grandma and grandpa, either they come down or we'll see them when they're 20. Because we're not going anywhere. And it there, and it wasn't, it's their immaturity that reveals my immaturity. My lack of patience. And of course, the whole time I was thinking Cynthia would have said, well, you should have made them go before you got in the car. Should have told them, do you have to go potty? Don't get in the car before you ask. So... But see, difficult people, because we're not mature, and then no, in, no one else around us is mature either. So that's why we have to have humility. We have to have gentleness. We have to have patience, because we're, we're all in the immature soup together. So how do we get out of it? What do we, what do we, how do we get to the point where when we're dealing with difficult people, our response can be uh, forgiveness and grace, or we're being dealt difficult circumstances, and our response can be courage and trust. Now, how do we get there? Forgiveness and grace, courage and trust. And it begins with committing ourselves to these tasks. No one says, this is how you do it. You bear with one another in love. You maintain the unity of the Spirit. You fight. You're eager to maintain these things. It's bearing. You know, one of the absolute marks of spiritual maturity is how much can you bear or how much do you try and deflect or put on others? How much can you bear? It's worth thinking about. One of the things I used to think when I would manage kind of little restaurant I managed, every day I'd kind of go to work, Lord, help me today to bear more burdens than I require and I put on others. How much do you, do you bear Bearing with one another. See, it's, such, it's one of the most difficult graces to cultivate in your life where you make allowances for the shortcomings of those around you. So how can we, how can we develop these things? See, one thing that's really important is, is the key. See, these are gospel-centered characteristics. And the key with the gospel is you have to repent and believe. Repent and believe. The way these things are fueled is Christ. Um, God desires these things for you. Christ died to give you these things, and the Holy Spirit was sent to work them in your life. So these are, these are gospel graces. They're not really personality traits. So you can't think, oh, well, I've, I've done a spiritual gift inventory. I've done the, uh, the HGP test, and I am, I'm pretty low on humility, and I'm kind of high on gentleness. That's not the way it works. These aren't personality traits. These are gifts. These are graces that are meant to be cultivated in our lives. And the first way we, they, we cultivate them is we recognize that he's already done all of these things for us. These aren't just descriptions about how you're supposed to be. These are definitions and declarations of how he's loved you, how, what the gospel is for you. They describe how he's already dealt with you. I mean, look at them and kind of work backwards. Think about maintaining the bond of the unity of peace. You're maintaining something he purchased with his blood. The unity is already there. That's what chapter 2 is all about, that Christ's death put an end to the enmity 
between Jew and Gentile, his blood purchased a bond of peace, and now we maintain it. He bought it. We maintain it. Or think about how we bear with one another. We bear with one another because gospel realities is that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace. But how does that all begin? It all begins, surely he has borne our grief. That's why we sing it. My sin, my sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed there to the cross and I bear it no more. You know how you have space on your back to bear others' burdens because the crushing weight of your own guilt is gone. We was walking our daughters to school, and I had my backpack, and my uh, little, it's so funny to watch these kids carry their backpacks, because there's like these, they look like little turtles, because they have these giant backpacks, and if you don't drive by and blow on them, because they'll fall over, and they have legs, and they won't get up, and she's trying to walk, and she looks at me, and it's like, Daddy, is there room in your backpack for mine? And I was like, yes. Yes, because, and that's the way life is. There's, there's room on, if you're a Christian, there's room on your back for other burdens because he's taken yours. The guilt that's on you has been removed. And now there's room on your back for others' burdens. And we do it in love. That's why Paul said it's so important in chapter 3. You have to get 3 before you get 4, before he demands you to bear others' burdens in love. He says you've got to be captured with his love for you. You have to know what is the the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of his love for us. And knowing that, we then have the freedom to bear it for others. Or think about how his love can fuel these things. His patience for us fuels our patience for others. No matter how many times your kids, your neighbors, your boss, whoever causes you to go... It won't be as many times as you could cause Christ to do that about you. You will never be more patient with another than he's already been with you. And so we behold that. We behold his gentleness. The way we become more gentle is we watch him being gentle with others. We see him as as a woman caught in adultery at the the moment of, of total abject humiliation and public shame is thrown at his feet and all the crowd wants to wants her to die and then you see the gentle strength as he heals and protects and lifts her back up you see the gentleness of one who a broken woman can come and just touch him and find healing and life you can see the gentleness of a father who can come and cry out lord help my son is there anything you can do and Jesus said if and he says i believe help my unbelief we can watch him in all of his gentle strength heal the broken you can listen to him as he summons all of the weak all of the wounded, all of the weary. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can take my yoke upon you because I'm taking yours on the cross. You can take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and I am humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. So we, the reality is there's so much weariness in our souls is because there's so much pride. We're committed to that unending concentration on ourself. 
And until we get free from that, we won't have rest. So we have to see him, see him. You know, I was trying to think of the way because in one sense, pride is a life centered on the big M-E. And it's so, I mean, it's even cheesy, but we need like a little graphic because what God brings down the proud, but the way he brings down the proud is he just kind of flips that M. He just flips it and turns it into a W. You want to find life. It's not an unending concentration on me. It becomes a focus and concentration on we. So it's no longer how, are me, how, how is me doing. It's how are we doing? We. You become selfless. It's like C.S. Lewis says in that same thing. Real humility, real humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. You start thinking of others. But as we look to him, it's his humility that fuels ours. It's his gentleness that fuels ours. It's his patience that fuels ours. So now the real question is, how can we get these characteristics worked into our life? Because they're hard. We can even feel motivated, like right now, yes, I'm going to lose the 80 pounds in eight days. And then say, there's stasis going to happen that's just going to draw us to self-centeredness and selfishness and harshness and impatience. So what does it take to have repentance at the deep level? I think it takes just a continual, repeated Week in, week out. It's one of the reasons we do uh, communion and confession every single week, just to remind ourselves. Confession, that reminds us of what the problem is. Communion reminds us of our only hope and solution, his blood and his righteousness. So let's spend some time just confessing now and ask the Lord to work deep humility into our hearts. So let's just bow and pray. And as we do, just, just take a few minutes to kind of think about your own life just this week. Have you looked down on anyone this week? Have you built yourself up by putting others down and looking down on them? Or this week, have you been too stung by criticism? Have you taken it too personally? It's been too wounding. The thing that was said, you just can't get out of your mind and you can't stop replaying the tapes and rewinding and Or is there ways this week your heart has been harsh and you've been harsh to others or been impatient? Been impatient with yourself? Been impatient with others in light of the gospel? So much of that is fueled by our need to try and keep a good image. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is it sets us free because we don't, we don't have to keep up a good image any longer. It's too hard and not necessary. So let's ask him to help us. So Lord, we come before you now. We ask that you would work uh, these deep character change into our hearts. We confess to you that so often we um, try and exalt ourselves by putting others down, that we uh, can be so emotionally fragile. We're just one little word or one little glance or one help make us stronger and more secure. And Lord, we confess that so often we can be so harsh I mean, there's some people here that are so harsh, not with others, they're, they're too harsh with them, themselves. Set them free. And Lord, we confess that so often we are so impatient. Help us to be wise and to number our days and to, to, to think well and to live well and love well. And we pray that the, the gospel would work itself into our lives so we no longer feel the crushing burden of trying to... Um, 
pretend that we're so much better than we really are. Because in the light of your grace, it's not necessary. It's no longer necessary. Lord, we pray for the real marks of maturity, the marks of grateful, restful joy. And we ask that you help us because all week long we will be um, confronted by difficult people and help us to respond with forgiveness and grace. And we will be confronted by difficult circumstances and help us to respond with trust in you and courage and help us not to be those difficult people that um, people encounter. So this is our prayer. Our desire is to experience the type of change you uh, call us to here and empower us by your spirit. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. As I mentioned, we